Morning, everybody. If you'd like to stand with us, this is a new song to all of us, but it's a fitting song for the times and just kind of a prayer for us as we kind of focus in. So, you might not know it. You don't have to sing if you don't want to, but read the words and kind of. Sometimes sorrow is the door to peace sometimes heartache is the gift i need but you're faithful faithful in all things There's deep joy that you give to me Where hurt meets the healing is a holy I see goodness, your goodness in all things. In every high, in 
my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd, leads me to still waters, and he restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd, leads me to still waters, and he restores my soul. In every high, in every low, on mountain tops, down broken roads, you're still my rock, my hope remains. I'll rest in the arms of Jesus. In every high, in every low, on mountain tops, down Come what may Awesome. God, we know that you're always with us and we praise you and we thank you so much for that, God. Come what may, you're with us. And we know that. We have faith in that. We love you. We're here today because we love you, because you've worked in all our lives somehow. Um, most of us see it. You know, the little things we don't see. Um, we praise you for all of it, from the good, the bad. You're with us through everything, and we love you for it. So we just uh, pray for today, that as we hear your message, we have ears to hear it. Um, pray for the kids, um, and just all of us today, God. Let us move closer to you today. Amen. Right, we're going to sing one more song, but kids, if you'd like, you're dismissed. And uh, go meet volunteers in the back.
Before we, uh, before Leonard comes up and we, we got our service today, we wanted to make a statement about uh, what we're about to do. And um, eight weeks from now, when we jump back into the book of Luke, we're going to hear Jesus say this, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Um, we're pausing our study in the book of Luke um, to pray for the faith of the Philippians because they have what every church needs to be a church. Um, they have unity in the gospel, gospel unity. That's what we're trying to pray down as we, as we walk into the book of Philippians and together. Um, so they've witnessed God in his message about his son, believed in him as savior and are joyfully following him as Lord. Blessed are those, rather, who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus tells us in Luke eleven twenty eight, the Philippians heard and kept it. Um, they're a house of faith, undivided in the neighborhood of God's kingdom, built by the gospel, the gospel of grace and mercy in Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, their hope is no longer in a single atom's of themselves before God, but in Christ alone, his righteous life, his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrected life. That's what they're banking on before God. They have nothing else to put before him. They believe that Jesus was their mediator before God. They believed that the father adores his only begotten son and therefore adores all who come to him through faith in this Jesus, the ever, the ever living son 
of the ever-living God who brings many sons to glory. Hebrews 7 says it like this. Hebrews 7, 25 says, Consequently, meaning because of the sufficient, uh, satisfying, and finished work of God, our Savior Christ, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. By faith in Jesus, God has brought them out from under judgment and set them in the favor, favor of his salvation. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. The bondage of sin, Satan, self, and death is forever broken in Christ, having dropped everything else to lay hold of this, of Christ alone, the Philippians share in the unity of this gospel truth understood and embraced, not just together, but one, in gospel freedom. Paul forms, puts back together, and maintains every church he plants and writes to with the gospel. The gospel, that's, it's the only tool in his toolbox. And any church without it will fail without it and be that house divided. So this is where we draw our unity from. So as a first step toward gospel unity, let's collectively pray this unity in, agree, in agreeance and in faith in this good news. The good news is simply he took our place and gave us his. This is our only hope and the only hope we need sufficient for salvation. And so our prayer is Romans 15, 13. And I ask you to pray with me this verse. Father, we come to you in the name of your son because through him we have all we need before you. And eternal life. So may the God of hope fill you, FCC, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And I'll just add that the gospel is a sure hope. And thank you, Father, that you have provided every the means we need to be saved. May we use the instrument of our faith and reach out and grab it. And may you help us along and form this unity within us. It's for your wonderful and perfect name we pray, giving all these eight weeks to you and beyond. Amen. Um, setting us up with uh, the book of Philippians, which is a church that the gospel, uh, like the gospel of Luke and Matthew and John, uh, helped to create. And it really is the outcome of the broadcasting of the good news. And we wanted to explore that church a little bit so that we can ask the question, uh, what, what do we have in common with that church and what can we learn from it? And um, some of you may have, may have wondered, uh, as you're going through the book of Luke, why we're making that pause uh, and I thought it, we thought it would be a good case study to just explore for a second what the, what the fruit of the gospel creates when people gather upon hearing the good news. Do you ever wonder, like in uh, 1859, 
maybe even 1858, people were gathering in the Salem area and they were starting to um, uh, bring from Europe uh, their faith and their understanding of Christianity. And they were asking the question, how can we on fresh soil begin to articulate that in a way that we can become a church? And I have no idea what the church or what the people who gathered in the, in the 1850s that ultimately created what became known as uh, First Christian Church of Salem. I have no idea what those conditions were like other than the fact that there were a group of people who got together and they started cooperating uh, around the good news and the outcome of that was the church. But I also believe that they were reading the scripture and they were finding in it things that would define what it meant whenever you would gather together. And some of those things we've uh, talked a little bit about in the past uh, like meeting together, uh, like it says in Acts 2, uh, for the Apostles' Doctrine, that is a Bible study, for fellowship, that is gathering and having things in common and doing things together in the faith, uh, for uh, prayer, and then the Lord's Supper. And we patterned our church after that since then. Um, and hopefully those are the fundamentals that kind of keep us going. But... Um, as we kind of look at that question, I actually want to look at it from the standpoint of where in the world did the church at Philippi come from? Why did that thing just show up on the map all of a sudden? And looking at the backdrop of that, um, the conditions that were going on in Paul's day, who wrote this letter of, of Philippians, uh, and the conditions that early, early Christians were dealing with, our sociologists will tell us are not a whole lot different than the conditions that we find ourselves in right now. Lots of uh, government policy from the top down, heavy-handedly oppressing a lot of the people who are just uh, people that are everyday people like you and I. Uh, there was a, a lot of occultic activity happening. There was a lot of exploitation happening with human beings, uh, human trafficking, so to speak. Uh, there was drug and alcohol use and abuse. Um, there were uh, people who lived in the corporate world who said, I'm frustrated with how uh, that whole engine is turning. There were other people who said, I'm just tired of my job and I'm tired of my boss and you can take this job and shove it. And there's a lot of that going on as well. But uh, with those characteristics in mind, uh, probably the thing that, that we compound upon this is we're living in a, in a, in a pandemic or post-pandemic or a, I don't know what this, this is that we're in right now. Um, but uh, that, that also is another layer to the fun. Uh, or should I say uh, the, the anxiety. Um, some of you wondered why I came in with a mask. Well, uh, that thing which should not be named has arrived at my house. I figured as uh, having a wife as a school teacher, it wasn't a question of if, but when. And on Wednesday, uh, she came home and said, yeah, I uh, just got a call from one of the parents saying that um, her, the kid that I was just spending a lot of time with, uh, their whole family has COVID. And so immediately we're like, uh, okay, um, we hate to do this to you, honey, but we're locking in the basement. And uh, so I'm sure she would do the same thing to me out of love. 
Uh, so we've been uh, very vigilant about um, taking care of her, and uh, she did test positive on Friday. Uh, but even Wednesday, I said, you know, just to be safe, because we've seen this coming, I'm just going to go to sleep in Mayim's room, and, um, which is where I usually go anyway whenever we have a little bit of a, like, uh, uh, didn't get the honeydew list or whatever, but no, I'm just kidding. She's good. Um, but uh, she uh, obviously needs your prayers. Uh, she's not feeling very good this morning. And uh, Stephen is in the middle of finishing up his CDL. He's got two weeks left, and we're all just being very, very careful about um, uh, trying to keep everybody healthy. But, you know, it's here in our home, and I'm trying to keep away from you guys because I don't want anybody. If I'm, I feel fine. I felt fine the whole time. I don't have any symptoms or anything. But I don't understand the whole thing totally, and I don't want to affect anybody. So if I'm keeping my distance from you, it is, it is very reluctantly, because there's one thing I love about this job is being able to talk to, talk to you guys and to, to be your pastor. But right now, I'm a pastor at a distance. Uh, but hey, at least we're not doing a Zoom call, right? So um, that said, uh, if you're uncomfortable, feel free to get up and leave, but I, I think I'm okay. Um, but uh, it does create um, a, a nervousness uh, in all of us when we, we get that news. But the thing uh, that, that Rich mentioned about the gospel, I mean, the good news definitely one-on-one with God. Uh, he takes our sinfulness away, and in turn, he gives us his righteousness. But there's something even larger about the gospel message that's important for you guys to absorb, and that is Jesus is Lord. Um, Joe Biden is not. Whoever is leading the global economic front is not. Whoever is the power brokers are the power brokers of the world are not. Jesus is ultimately Lord. And taking it even a step higher, the powers and the principalities that are working in the backdrop of, of the world that we live in that make life difficult because people that are prone to follow that way are easily influenced by those forces. Even those powers have been served notice that there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus. And Paul will write in this book to con- confirm that and clarify it for the people that are showing up at church. He writes a little bit later that Jesus is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. And at his feet, everyone will bow and everything that will bow that is on earth, under the earth and in the realm of the unseen, all things will ultimately bow down and have to recognize and give account that Jesus is Lord. That, to me, is the best news of all, because I wake up every day knowing all of these uncertainties are churning in the world that you and I live in, but it is well with my soul. I have peace of mind. Even as my wife is languishing, I know a couple of things. I know that God is with her. I know that his angels are around her. I know that people are praying for her. And so I I am confident that God will take care of her and take care of you guys as well. 
But I still get anxious because I see the effects of the oppressive hand of all of these forces that were not uncommon in the Roman world and certainly seem to be very much at work in the world that you and I are living in right now. And generally, they can be understood as forces of chaos, where everything that God has created and ordered for a creational purpose is attempting to be dismantled. And people are being dehumanized in the process. And in Paul's day, he saw it everywhere that he went. And in our day, we see people running around in fight or flight, which is what animals do. And there's something about our human dignity that seems to be suppressed. And the good news is it doesn't have to be because we have a savior. We have a deliverer. We have one who is in the business of reclaiming the world that has been stolen from him and making it right. And Paul is very much aware of this. He is so aware of it that he is excited to the point of not even being able to contain his enthusiasm that the good news that Jesus is Lord is the answer. It is the remedy. It is the way. And when that awareness, when he was woke in the very Christian sense of the word, he said, I am on it. And if it is within my capacity, I will make sure that there is a church established everywhere from the northern part of the Holy Land all the way to the farthest reaches of Spain. That is my life's mission. And as he attended to that very, very bold uh, move, God blessed it. And the places that he went, he saw all kinds of people that were just postured to hear some good news. Because if you were to just sit down and have a cup of coffee with them, they would say, my life's pretty broken, and there's something inside of me that says, there's got to be a better way. So Paul's praying, and he's, in Acts 16, we read the story of Paul praying, and he's being directed by the Holy Spirit to go to a region, and the city that uh, he's called to that we're recognizing in that region is the city of Philippi, which is kind of like, if you've ever been in the United States to sort of an up-and-coming city like Austin or Charlotte or, um, uh, I, I don't know, I'm not want to travel to the up-and-coming cities, but I just know there are places where, you know, the brightest people and the most capable people tend to land, and when they land there, everything functions real well, and their wealth is, is sort of obvious in how the, the civic elements of the, the arts and everything just flourish. And Philippi was that place. But the thing about Philippi that um, is interesting is 
Those people were so happy in their way of life because the Roman government was saying, yeah, we want to feed that and we're going to make exceptions and we're going to make policies that will continue to expand that way of life that um, you guys are enjoying. But everything on the surface that looked so beautiful had a dark shadow. And when Paul is praying, where do I need to go? God says, Philippi. So he goes there and he thinks, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to meet some people. And the best place to go is a, a place of prayer outside of the city gates. It's where the Jewish people were going because even in that situation, they were like, yeah, we kind of want you here, but we don't want you here. So go outside and worship outside of the city. So he went by the river and he met a lady who was um, a very successful businesswoman named Lydia. And her business model was centered on um, uh, basically importing and exporting dyes so that people that wore purple who were in that city could just broadcast to everybody, hey, we're special because not everybody can have purple um, or purple cars or whatever you want to choose. And, uh, and, and as um, I'm just joking, of course, um, but as that uh, sort of dark side started to uh, manifest in different lives, Lydia heard the good news, recognized the emptiness of the corporate culture that she was a part of, and said, I need more. And when Paul broadcast the gospel to her, she said, that's it. She says, count me in. So then some people that are in her sort of entourage uh, get on board, and you have the beginnings of a, of a group of people that say, we want to worship the Lord. So Paul goes to this gathering week after week, and along the way, he sees a couple of guys who have in tow, uh, this slave girl who has this occultic ability to look at you and to read your palm and to say, I know everything there is to know about you. And then she would say with uncanny accuracy, things that happened in your past and things that were going to happen in the future, and people paid a lot of money, especially in the competitive city of Philippi. It was good to have an edge. And if you could pay her owners for pimps the money that uh, they were asking, your hope was it would increase a hundredfold in competitive uh, advantage over uh, the people that uh, you're doing business against. And Paul encountered these people, and she was pretty annoying because she said some things about who he was, and, and he just finally said, you know what, spirit, you come out. And all of a sudden, her ability just emptied itself, and she was no longer capable of reading people's fortunes. Now, you can imagine that the owners of this girl, now notice I said owners because people owned people back then. They weren't too thrilled about this. So they called 911, and they said, this guy is undermining the religious statutes of our wonderful empire. And so he gets arrested. 
But Paul's not too bothered by that because he knows that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And so off he goes to jail and he's in there praying and singing and so forth. And all of a sudden, things start to happen and doors start to open. And it gets pretty dramatic because clearly there is something other than just uh, the power of, um, uh, of, of, of earthquakes and the power of perhaps um, uh, you know, dynamite and things that would break open a jail. Clearly it was the hand of God. And the Philippian jailer said, there's something about you, Paul, that impresses me at a level that I can't even explain. Now, I'm a jailer because I'm just kind of a pensioner from the Roman army, and I'm making a lot of money here doing this. But it ain't getting it. And what you have to offer is exactly what I've been looking for. And so he invites Paul over to share the good news with himself and his whole family, and they say, we are in. Now, there's a lot more about the backstory, but essentially, you got some of these people from these encounters getting together and saying, how can we worship this Jesus? And a little while later, other people in that city who are tired of the veneer of everything looking great and awesome, but inside, souls are just dying and asking the question, what can Jesus do for my soul? Because I can project to people around me a good game, but inside I am just crushed. And there was a groundswell of these people who were tired of living in the fake. And they said, we want to live a real life and have a real faith around a real Savior rather than the propaganda and perception management of the government and the bureaucracy and all the stuff that everybody knew was just a bunch of lies. They're like, this is the real deal. Now, as they gather, the church starts to form, and they do the things that I mentioned. They hear the, they hear the word of God. They have fellowship together, koinonia, um, they pray together, and then um, they meet around the table, and they have a common meal. And they remember every week the sacrifice of the Lord, and they celebrate that. But there's a problem that uh, begins to emerge in churches, and Paul has to deal with this repeatedly. And it is the fact that anytime you get two people together, you have two wills, right? Anybody ever have that? Wherever the battle of the wills, two people, bring a third, man, it's starting to get complicated, bring a whole bunch of people, then, well, you could have a church or you could have a war. And Paul knows that there is something about each of our wills that left unchecked can be a very destructive component in the life of the church. Matter of fact, it can be one of the largest cancers of all. And he starts to see the fissures begin to happen within this church, and he wants to preempt it. And he wants these people to see that the mission that they have as a church is much larger 
than their individual wills. And I can tell you this about my own will. I, I'm very strong-willed. I, I, I belong to that club. And I recognize that. And I have a lot of ideas. And I have a lot of training and all of that stuff. But I'd be the first to tell you, when it comes to knowing everything, I know about this much. I really do. And I've learned it the hard way over the years that I have to have a little bit of humility about my, my lack of awareness of all things so that I can speak and proclaim about all things for everybody. And you know what the only correction is for willfulness? It is surrender to the lordship of Jesus. I found that out in my marriage. For a while, it was sort of like us together having a great time. Honeymoon wears off. Hormones wear off a little bit. Then you're like, oh, we have two wills here. Who's going to be the referee? Who's going to win? But then I remembered, oh, this is a covenant between her and I and him. And then all of a sudden, it's like, not my will, but your will be done. Have you ever prayed? Have you ever heard a prayer that says, not my will, but your will be done? Or a variation of that, um, uh, uh, something like our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Yeah, we pray that prayer not because it's a beautiful prayer and we got to have it in worship, otherwise it ain't worship. We pray that prayer because it defines how we posture ourselves towards each other first and then the life that we live out there. If it's not having that effect, then you're missing it. You're praying a beautiful prayer, but maybe you're on autopilot and just saying it, you know. That's why I always say pray with intentionality because words matter. And these words really matter when it comes to the church. And Paul is wanting them, and I believe, by extension, wanting us to be a church united in our identity, not as Roman citizens, not even as American citizens, not even as Moors or Bryans or whatever, but united fundamentally around who we are to gather in Christ. Because that's the only identity we're going to take with us. I did a funeral here yesterday, or a couple of days ago, for, what is today, Sunday? <laughs> uh, don't worry, I'm okay. Um, and beautiful lady, uh, who had been dedicated to the life of this church for 50 years of service. And the, the point that the kids wanted to make was the church really was the place for her. But more than that, it was her identity. And, and I take that to mean what this place represents is so formative to who we are as human beings. That we can't just say, Jesus is Lord or Jesus is my Savior and not take it out of here into the world out there. 
But I would say the biggest threat that Paul had and that we have is, and it's the modern problem, we like our Christianity. Everybody, a lot of people are like, yeah, it's great being a Christian. But it's sort of like how I can make it fit into what I want. And the hardest job that I have as a pastor is to try to get you and myself, because I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the same car with you, to daily surrender to the will of the Lord and to trust that his way is the better way, even though right now it is going cross-purposes with the world that we live in. But I have, I have no choice but to say to the world or to you or to even my own willfulness, Jesus is Lord, and his voice counts the most. And yours only counts in the broad scheme of things when it resonates with his. And he's really trying to get this church to resonate on all fronts with the character and person and work of Jesus. We're going to find out about that in chapter 2. But for today, uh, let's just look at verses 1 through 11 with that little, this is how we get started into the book uh, saying. So here's Paul and Timothy. And if you live in Charlotte or you live in Austin or you live in Atlanta or you live in, um, I, don't, I don't know, whatever cool place, you know, you want to live in Seattle maybe or whatever, Paul and Timothy are, the word actually is slaves of Christ. And in the Roman Empire, there's a pecking order about whether or not you're worth anything as a human being. Like the higher up you go, the more important you are socially, the more worth you have, the more you are really a human being. And Paul says, we'll start at the bottom here. You want to know who I am? I'm a slave. I'm a servant. And people are like, what? But he's saying, I'm a servant, not under Caesar, but a servant under Jesus, who happens to be Lord of the universe. Then he says to all the, and I don't like this word anymore. I just think it's a bad word because it doesn't work. It's the holy ones in Christ. We use saints like there's saints and then there's me, you know. There's super Christians and then there's ordinary Christians. You know, there are people that listen to K-Love and have the little Jesus thing on their bumper, you know, and you're like, has to be a super Christian. There are people like me who have Leonard Skinner stickers and the Jesus thing on their bumper who, you know, I don't know what category that fits into. But the bottom line is, if God has set you apart and he has transferred you out of the domain of darkness into the dome of God's kingdom, you are, by that definition, a saint. You're a holy one. You are a person that is called to be a son or a daughter in Christ. Um, again, I don't like that word because it just doesn't carry the freight anymore. It's a good word, but it just is a messed up word now. 
in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, and just think Acts 16, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We're going to stay right there on that, on that for just a second. Because as this letter is being read to the congregation, they're just, they're just hanging on every word because they're like, Paul has something to say, and he's the one who founded this church. And he called us partners in the gospel. It's almost like there isn't a division between, you know, paid people who tell people about Jesus and the rest of us who are just trying to hold it together. No, he's saying all of us have some role here, and we're partners, and we're going to explore that in a minute. And then he says, there is something going on inside of each of you. You come into this room year after year, God is saying, that first day that you came, I love you, Brent, just the way you were, but I love you enough to do something to make you more like my son. So painfully and graciously and patiently and lovingly, God goes through the process of bringing us back here every Sunday. We get into conflicts with people or perhaps somebody rubs us the wrong way and we're like, do I hold a grudge? Do I be spiteful or should I? Should I work on making this an us issue and here's a problem that we're just going to work on together? And you begin to kind of reframe how you look at everything because now you're starting to see life through the lens of Jesus. And I would say that if there hasn't been any discernible change in your life from the time that you started common until now, that uh, you're just not paying attention. And God is saying to each of us, Pay attention. But a lot of you are saying, I can't because I'm so distracted by what is happening out there that all my bandwidth is taken up with worry. My, my wife's got COVID. I'm concerned about my job. I'm worried about making ends meet. I have all of these uncertainties that are just clogging my mind. And my only word to you is, Jesus is Lord. And the good news is, Whatever your concern is, it's part of his role and his responsibility to help you with each and every one of them. And if he can't, then he's not Lord. But if he can, it just means that we have to pay attention and ask how he's going to help us. Because he will. He has and he always does. But a lot of us don't like the, hey, God, answer my prayer. But... We don't like the, sometimes God says, yes, right away. Sometimes God says, yes, when the time is just right, you'll see it. And sometimes God says, not such a great idea. You might want to pray about that and rethink it a little bit. And the people who were beginning to see that recognized that all of those fight-or-flight, bandwidth-clogging concerns 
would just be laid at the feet of Jesus. Because when the Son of God sets you free, we know. Martin Luther King said it. The Bible says it. You're free indeed. And I have worries and concerns. Don't get me wrong. I'm not Pollyannish about it. But this is what I do with them. I bring them to the Lord. I say, Lord, help me. Because I trust that you, when you say you will, you will. And then I, I, I get in the habit of sort of leaving it there, paying attention to the concern, find out what I need to do. But overall, I'm not trying to solve the problem in my head all day long. I'm trusting that where I can't, where I am powerless, he is powerful. And we'll discover that in this letter too. Because he's actually doing something through all of the chaos and madness called a good work. You ever try to learn something just from a YouTube video or a book? Like my, 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 my two boys, I taught them how to drive a stick, you know, and, and they'd be prone to say, well, what's, let, let me read the book about it first, or let me watch the YouTube video. I said, forget it. Just get behind the wheel and start making mistakes. Of course, that's behind the wheel of my challenger, and I'm just... I'm praying. I mean, I have worries and concerns, and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, please, please. I know I wrecked my parents' car when I did this, but please don't let that repeat itself. And um, they just learn by doing. It's funny hearing the, talking to Stephen. On Monday, he started driving a semi, you know, moving gears and stuff. And if anybody's ever done that, it's not like, you know, your mom's... Uh, you know, three-speed Pinto back in 1971. It's much more complicated. And he came home and he's like, I don't think I can do it. I just, uh, this, it's not like a car. It's a different animal. I said, why don't you ask God to help you? Sleep on it. Try again tomorrow. Came home, he's just beaming. He's like, I got it, I got it, it's no problem. I got it, and he was just so thrilled, and I said, that's kind of how it works. You have to struggle with it to appreciate it. And God, in the work that he does in your life and mine, he lets us struggle. But our culture confuses struggle with, that's not right, or if you're not comfortable, that's not right. But I have, I have bad news for you guys. Christianity is not always comfortable because we're not designed to always be comfortable. And Christianity is not without a struggle because clearly our struggle is real. It's not even flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities, which are <laughs> greater than us. So it is there. But it's something that Jesus helps us with at every turn. And what that creates, if you're paying attention to the struggle, is a dependence upon him day after day after day, where you really get to know him. I mean, you really get to trust him. You really get to respect him even more because you find out he's faithful. But Paul's aware that there are people, and they're religious people in that day, who will go to church or go to the synagogue day after day after day and 
everyone had heard that story by that time in the early church. You know, there are people that will be say, Lord, I did all these things for you. And Jesus says, I never knew you. And the reason why he says that in that parable is they're doing good things, but they weren't bothering to ask the Lord to uh, help them in the struggle. There's a difference. Because we don't do the work that we do in our own strength. We do it in the strength of the Lord. Because we are in him and he is in us. So let's, let's move on. Because I'm going to gobble up all the time. So he says, um, uh, bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you all in my heart for you all are in are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the de- defense and confirmation of the gospel for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be able to prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Father. So let's just unpack this real quickly. Um, And if you have your message notes, uh, feel free to just kind of fill in as you see. But the early Christians, when they were gathering in churches like this, and time kind of wore on, sometimes people would fall away, and they'd even forget that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. They'd kind of forget that they were even saved, and they would get what the early church would call having amnesia. Now, we're familiar with that in modern terms, but it's basically forgetting who we are, and forgetting what we're supposed to do. I don't know if you have this problem or not, but I hate to, I'm embarrassed to even say it. But I'll be working on something um, out in the garage. And I'll say, oh, I need to go in the house and get something. You know where I'm going with this? I go in there, and I'm like, why am I here? And so I'm like, okay, uh, let me remember. What was I doing five minutes ago? And then I have to rehearse it. Then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in here to um, tell my wife I'm going to be late for supper. And then she said, you're going to be sleeping in Mayim's room tonight. But not really. Um, But we always have to gather as a church on a consistent and regular basis to avoid having amnesia because we all are capable of forgetting. Actually, we forget a lot. We forget most things, believe it or not. We're not as bad as Dora on, or Dory or whatever her name is on the fish show, but sometimes we're getting there. And the Word of God is the thing that keeps us anchored. And Philippians 1 reminds us of who we are and what we are to do. And it starts with those people I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Lydia and her, her gang of friends.
friends and workers, the Philippian jailer and his gang of friends and family, and others that were hearing it as well that weren't mentioned. They're coming together, and God wants to remind them through Paul, I've begun something pretty special in your life. And what I've started, I'm going to make sure it gets done. God's a follow-thrower person. But sometimes we forget. What are we doing? Oh, yeah, God's doing something in me. He's working out something in me. And he'll remind you, and he'll even use one another to remind you. And even you guys online, I'll I'll remind you. Thanks for tuning in online. But whenever you're ready, um, God says uh, the work that we're doing starts with the word and visually and, and the training and stuff, but it continues on through us serving together. Because Philippians 1 reminds us of not only who we are and what we do, but the church, whenever you look at it through the Philippian eyes, through the 1859 FCC eyes, and through the eyes of FCC 2021, has always functioned like a cooperative. It works best when each of us identifies with our role as, first of all, partners in the gospel, which Paul says, and, um, and then partners in grace. So if you were to say, what is the business of FCC? Do you guys, do you guys make crafts? Do you um, help people with money? Do you, what is it that you do? And we can honestly say that we are partners with each other for the proclamation and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're the only outpost on the planet that is telling planet chaos and madness right now, Jesus is the Lord uh, and, and you're not, and this is not. Chaos is what the world was created from. It's not what it's supposed to go back to. And our job is to hold the line for the kingdom Matter of fact, it's beyond that. It's to recover all those creational purposes that um, Jesus uh, began to uh, uh, show us that are part of why he came to redeem, reclaim, to reset humanity, and ultimately begin a new creation. That's a pretty tall order. And our good news, one-to-one, is we're broken people. We are people that follow our own willfulness. We are people that are prone to addictions. And right now, I think addictions are probably off the charts because people are saying, I got to have some relief from the stuff that is happening. And it, and it could be food. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be working out. It could be porn. It could be any number of things that you say, I need that. And the gospel is here to tell you, You don't need that. You don't need that. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. Find your joy in him. Bring him close. And you'll start to see that that other stuff doesn't get it. And it's not as important. So the good news is we broadcast to everyone that in our brokenness, Jesus has a way of making us right. 
starting with right with God and, and we and in technical words, we talk about being imputed with Christ's righteousness. But Paul is talking about something a little bit more ground level in righteousness here. He's talking about just figuring out how to live, how to do right living. And that's pretty good, I think. It's why I'm a Christian, because I was living in a way that I'm like, it's not working. I need to learn how to live right. And the church was so helpful in defining boundaries and helped me to understand what it means that God is not only Lord, but he's a provider, that he's a giver of wisdom, that he helps my relationships to be healthy, that he helps me to reconcile with people that I'm estranged with. All this stuff that I am so unhealthy in, the church was the pathway to find health again, to find right living. And Paul is really concerned about us discovering how to live authentically before God and before each other, to live in reality. I, I know a lot of people that they're just not living in reality, and they'll say, I don't want to live in reality. I will choose to live in a fantasy right now. It may not be real, but at least it feels safe. But the problem with fantasy is that it doesn't have any, any connection to the real world. It's just ideas. It becomes reality when that vision connects with the everyday. And Paul says, I've got something for you. And it's not just a fantasy. It is a very compelling vision for life. That's not just, hey, let's debate about it, let's talk about it, let's argue about it, have fun in the realm of ideas. But it has every day, every moment implications. I think you'll like it. And God is saying, but the only way it works is if we are partners in grace. Now, grace is such a loaded word in the Bible. You'll hear it a lot. If you're new to Christianity, um, it's an important word. But it says a few very powerful things um, that, that I want to point out here. Um, when grace comes from God, when God performs an action towards us, or through us, the Bible calls it grace. Like I remember praying for Susie one time, and I just feel like God's given me words. And I'm like, that was not just me and her having a prayer conversation. That was God making something happen. And believe it or not, Susie, that's worked the other way too. And God does so much, whether it's me preaching Brian uh, and the praise team doing what they do, the Joy Club doing what they did on Wednesday, our server serving, our people in the kids' ministry ministering. If you are asking God to enable you in that process, then the grace flows from God through that. Of course, if you try to do it without asking him, then it's just you, and God's like, I don't know what you're doing. But there's another way that grace works, and that is when you and I are healthy in our faith, our natural response to God is, 
God, this, is, this isn't good enough. God, I'm, I'm no, n- not liking it. God, life would be great if you could only fix those three things. God, I'm just constantly in fear that that thing is going to go wrong. Um, that's not actually what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, despite the messiness of life, you wake up every day with a posture of gratitude. God, there are six, seven, ten blessings in the day that I've counted, not to mention the one I've over, ones I've overlooked. I am so thankful. Right now, I'm thankful for the air I breathe, that other people right now in this season are struggling with. Right now, I'm grateful for the body of Christ that seems to be coming back to life again here. Right now, I'm just grateful to see you guys because I'm going to have to live with you guys forever. Do you know that? Some mornings, I, I come in here, and I'm like, man, I don't want to see that person or that person. Then I'm like, no, Leonard, you're going to have to live with them forever. Love them because there are times when they're like, I don't want to see him. You hope that God's saying to them, love them. Because it's the only way. Be grateful. As hard as it is to believe, I am grateful for every one of you guys here and our people online and the people that are taking the Lord seriously. What a blessing. So when we have grace flowing from our lives outward and especially up to God, typically... Harris have used, it implies gratitude. It's a response. It should be our response. I mean, the pilgrims were one of the first cooperatives, believe it or not, on this planet, or on this country, or, you know, uh, from Europe over here. Indians cooperated way before, but, or Native Americans. But whenever they gathered on land that the Native Americans had said, you know, we've, we're not using this. So I understand. Um, they were thankful. They were so thankful for so many things that they actually established that moment as a monument in time. And we celebrate it every football game that happens at the end of November. As a sidebar, it's also Thanksgiving, believe it or not. And gratitude is just a defining element of who we are as God's people. So I'm going way over. So here I'm just going to tell you the three goals real quick and then we're going to end. Trying to jam 20 pounds of sausage into a 10-pound sack, it's not working too well, but God is still working. And I'm trusting that in this message, he will have spoken to all of us by the time we're done. Three goals defined by Paul's prayer for this cooperative. Number one, they would gain more information and learn how to apply it towards their lives together. That is, they're getting Bible knowledge, but they're saying, been to 20 Bible studies, but not only have I been to these Bible studies, I'm actually taking it into my life and saying, this is how it works. And I've been to 20 Bible studies, and I'm also learning to love other people around me. That's what he's saying. That's what verse 9 says. Verse 10, his prayer is also this, that this wise love 
would recognize the pattern of behavior around them that dehumanizes life. I would just encourage our people, if you're followers of Jesus, to pay less attention to people's words. Less attention to people's words. And more attention to their pattern, to their fruit, to the thing that's coming out of their lives. If it's good, you'll have a peace about it. If it's not good, it will make you anxious and perhaps even draw you in a way that dehumanizes you. People talk about the mental health of where we're at in this moment, and they'll say it's kind of like everybody's out of five and below, kind of like the store, only worse. And they, they basically say that we're just not in a good place in our mental health collectively as a nation. And when you're at a five and you could be a 10, something is sort of dehumanizing your humanity to a place where you're not who you're supposed to be. And you have to look at all the things that are speaking into your world and the effect that they're having on you and ask the question, what's the pattern here? What's the fruit? And is it something that is feeding my soul or is it something that is dehumanizing and putting me down and oppressing my person? Jesus is Lord, and the rulers of the world are not. And that's to underscore the point. Thank you, by the way. Your pay packet will be at the end. Just see the paymaster at the end of the service. The third goal of the cooperative is our lives will begin to overflow with right living. That is God's way of living. We're people of peace. It's a shalom. It is a, a well-being that we have with God and with each other and just with the world, that we, with the environment that we live in that only comes from God. And everybody's looking for it, and nobody can seem to find it. And perhaps church, churches haven't been the best at dispensing it. But the bottom line is Jesus is the source of everything that we need, we start with him and we move out. And if we do that together, because Paul uses a lot of you alls in, in his language, because it's not just for Brent, but Rachel, you're okay. It's for all of us together. Salvation isn't just a personal private thing. It is the incorporation into a body of people where we are now interdependent by design. If we're not doing that, then we're not who we're supposed to be. So I said a lot, and you guys are like, my heads are spinning, I'm tired, I got a headache. I just want you to know that the reason why Jesus came was so that you could be a part of something that is not from this world. And every week for the next eight weeks, we're going to explore what that means to be in this world, but not of this world. So I'm just going to end in prayer for now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us such good news, that our souls find healing and restoration because of a bloodstained cross, 
that our peace with God is made and we're no longer in that state of hostility with him and as a result, less with each other. I thank you, Father, for working in this body in the way that you have to lead us through a pandemic which has been so difficult and painful for all of us to keeping our minds right and healthy and wise and orderly when disorder, confusion, irrational thinking seems to be the order of the day. Thank you, Father, for giving us the clarity that begins when we begin with your son each and every moment of every day. My prayer, Lord, right now is for this body of people who are gathered both here and online, that they would begin to be intentional about making you Lord of everything and surrendering to you in all things. And I pray for those who gather during this time who are working in their hearts to be drawn into a personal relationship with you, that the outcome of this time in your word in Philippians would be that lives would be saved and drawn into your redemption through baptism and through declaring the testimony of your lordship. So I just pray that that would happen in this body as a result of the work that we're offering to you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Leonard wrote a really good article a couple weeks ago that really hit home. Uh, it had to do with uh, physical and spiritual dehydration. And uh, I couldn't help but think back, and maybe a lot of you can relate to this, but it's been 50 years ago. I was probably in the best shape of my life, believe it or not. Uh, during basketball season, you felt like you could run forever, and uh, uh, nothing could stop you. But um, in those days, I'm, I'm grateful for change, too, because in those days, you had uh, salt tablets on the wall. Nobody carried their individual water bottles and all that. And, of course, you always had the one idiot on the team that you had the, the team water bottle, but instead of squirting it in his mouth, he thought you had to suck on the, you know, the end of it, so you bypassed that. But it was uh, a late-night Friday night game, and the salt tablets were terrible. And I hardly ever took them, but... Um, my granddad, uh, I went home after the dance, after the game, and went right to bed knowing that I was going to get to go hunting with my granddad the next morning. And about 5 o'clock before the sun was even up, there was a knock on my window, and he hollered through, and he says, are you going rabbit hunting today, or are you going to sleep in all day? And it's like, it's pitch dark outside. But away I went, and we went down, down towards Susie's place, actually, and uh, – six or seven hundred acres down that way that had been uh, stripped and a uh, nice place to, to go. And I couldn't figure it out, though, because after a while I, I got up, it was frosty outside and, you know, looked cold. And I put on my a T-shirt and my, my thermal and a pullover sweatshirt and a hooded sweatshirt and my canvas jacket on top of that. And I was ready to go. But after I got walking, you know, a little while... The sun came up, and I think it warmed up about 85 degrees, and I didn't know what to do. I, I was getting really weak, and I didn't realize, but it was from the, the dehydration of, of not having any water or any fluid after all that time. So I, you know, I couldn't figure out either. My granddad, he was an old man. He was probably almost 60, 
And uh, I, I wondered how he could keep going when he wasn't in shape. You know, and I looked up on the hillside, and he's up there walking on a cow path while I'm down there, brush this high, and trees you're climbing over and everything else, trying to kick out game for him to shoot at. And, uh, but anyway, I, I stripped down, you know, some of my clothes and shoved them in the back of my coat. And I, honest to goodness, did not think I was going to make it back to the car. We finally did. And I think I was almost delirious from the dehydration. And I never saw my granddad. We got in a car and we drove to this little place down by Dungan, and it was a little mom and pop. Didn't even have a sign out front, I don't remember, but uh, there was a, you didn't have the pop machines then. You had a cooler that had maybe ice water in it, but Grandpa never carried a wallet. He had a little coin pouch, and he went in the store, and he came back out <laughs> empty-handed, and he motioned me up there, and he lifted the lid on this. And I'll never forget a little eight-ounce bottle of grape knee-high. How could that save your life? I mean, it probably was a 10-cent bottle back in those days, but I had that, and I immediately started feeling better. But I remember that as the most dehydrated time in my life that I'd ever experienced. And maybe you've even had that feeling, too, if you've ever uh, fasted, uh, whether it be three, seven, 12 days, it doesn't matter. When you come back from that fast, when you break that fast, you don't go for the Snickers and the Skittles and the junk like that. You go for the bread. And that's what we're looking at today is a remembrance through our spiritual dehydration of what this Lord's table means to us, the loaf and the cup, how much we need it, and what it means to us. But yet we have to be careful because Paul, Paul in his first letter of the Corinthians describes how we're supposed to partake of this, this loaf and cup. And uh, we're supposed to humble ourselves, to make our hearts right with God, to ask his forgiveness. And I think a lot of times, and I personally have, you know, taken the cup where, okay, I'm good to go, thinking that that, you know, without any remembrance of what was done on our behalf, was, uh, was corrected by filling the cup. So if you'd join me in prayer, let's, let's go to the table today and uh, let's ask the Lord's forgiveness and give thanks for what he's done for us. Heavenly Father, as we approach this table today, we just appreciate so much. We can't even comprehend the, the grace that was given on our behalf. You're going to the cross, shedding your blood and your body that was, that was broken and nailed up for just the terrible pain you endured for us. Lord, we remember that sacrifice today as we approach this table, as we partake of the loaf and cup representing your body and blood. We just give thanks for everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
before we sing this last song, just as we go into these next eight weeks, uh, that pamphlet that you received when you came in, it has uh, week one on it on the very back. Um, and if you join us in this room at every Tuesday for the next eight weeks, we're going to be cultivating unity by coming and being in unity, praying in unity for gospel unity. And so please um, come every Tuesday for the next eight weeks. Bring that. Just bring you. It's, it's going to be a very simple thing, an overview of what we hit um, in, the, in the message series. Yeah, it's 6, uh, 6 p.m. here on Tuesdays, uh, and, and we'll pray for the substance of that text, and in that way, we'll pull the faith of the Philippians down, all right? Um, and we're offering the opportunity to people, uh, you can contact the office, and we'll have a sign-up sheet up there. I was supposed to print out a sign-up sheet, and I missed it. My bad. Uh, but for people, there's a rich history of the church, uh, of everybody in the church, uh, it doesn't matter who it is, coming forward and reading the scripture for the day um, that we're going to be hitting. So if you'd like that as an opportunity to serve, to come forward, um, please uh, come, for, um, come forward. I wish I could say sign up in the sign-up sheet out back, but I messed that one up. Um, or contact the office. And um, in about week four of our time in the Philippians study, we're going to be... Uh, meeting these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, and these are men, Paul says, worth honoring. And so what we want to have in that time as we, uh, the Sunday before that is a men's breakfast. And you, uh, 9 a.m., uh, <laughs> bring a friend and no Halloween costume needed. Um, all right. But that, that's our announcements for now. And uh, join us as we come. And thank you for everything, Father, that's, you've done through your word today and may it continue in Jesus name. Amen.
righteousness alone faultless stand before the throne and faultless stand before the throne Christ Jesus, for your amazing grace, the grace that saves us, and the grace that sustains us, and the grace that brings us on to glory. Grant us the hope of the gospel through this grace as we proceed into the Philippians' faith. And may you grant us the same faith in the same God for the same thing, all for your glory. And it's for your wonderful name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll see you soon. Thank you.